Welcome to Word Journeys, a podcast about etymology and the surprising stories behind the origins of English words. This is Dallas, coming to you from Philadelphia. In this episode, we'll be discussing stars and constellations. In this uncertain universe, humans have looked for, and found, answers in the stars. On a practical level, the stars have been a tremendous navigational aid throughout history, allowing for exploration and reliable long-distance travel. On a less tangible level, regular or spontaneous movements of stars, planets, comets, and other celestial bodies have historically been used to predict uncertain outcomes, and individual life paths have been connected to the celestial arrangement at the time of one's birth. The position and appearance of the night sky has been linked to fate, and this connection was historically so strong that human interest in the stars is firmly cemented in the English language. From the Latin word cetus, meaning star, we get the English word consider, originally meaning to observe carefully. We might also get the word desire, referring to what someone wishes for, coming from the stars. Misfortune or calamity was thought to stem from unfavorable celestial alignments, a meaning present in the phrase star-crossed lovers from Romeo and Juliet, and this meaning with the Greek root astron, meaning star, gives us the English word disaster, ill-starred. On the other hand, a favorable heavenly position was a desired positive. The Yiddish phrase mazel tov, literally meaning good luck or good fortune, comes from the Hebrew word mazel, meaning luck, but also meaning star or constellation. Let's start with the concept of constellations. The night sky is an open canvas with an uncountable number of stars. Different cultures saw different patterns in the sky, and proximate groupings of stars were given names, shapes, and stories, depending on what connections each individual culture saw. The word constellation literally refers to this practice, from the Latin con, meaning together, and stella, meaning star. In today's episode, we're going to dive into individual constellations and investigate the impact that groupings of stars have had on the English language. Along the way, we'll encounter fantastical creatures, we'll learn how to navigate using the stars, and we'll encounter a Latin mistranslation of an Arabic mistranslation of a Greek word. We've divided our episode into three parts, representing the north, middle, and south of the globe. So pull out your telescope or your favorite stargazing app, and stay with us. Part 1 the Northern Sky. For inhabitants of the Northern Hemisphere, the constellations in the far northern sky are arguably the most important. They're visible year-round, and they don't move around too much, making them both familiar and vital for navigation. The reason for this has to do with what's called the Celestial North Pole. Imagine looking up at the night sky. Due to the rotation of the Earth, it will appear to a viewer in the Northern Hemisphere that all of the stars and constellations in the sky are rotating slowly around a single point, the celestial north pole. Whereas stars that are far from the pole rotate with a wide radius and will disappear below the horizon at various points in the year, stars close to the pole rotate with a small radius and are thus always visible. And in FYI, the word pole is derived from the Latin polis, meaning an axis or pivot, or, indeed, the entire sky. 
The most recognizable northern constellation is a pattern of seven stars, with four outlining a box and three more creating a kind of handle. Americans call this grouping the Big Dipper, since it appears like a ladle, and viewers in the British Isles call it the Plow, since it also resembles a plow. Different cultures have always had different names for the same groups of stars. To the ancient Egyptians, the Big Dipper looked like the leg and thigh of an ox. To the Maya, it appeared like a parrot. Many Native American groups thought it resembled a bear, with the box being part of the bear's body, and the three-starred handle being the bear's tail. And the Greeks and Romans also thought it was a bear, which is where it gets its official name, Ursa Major, meaning the Great Bear in Latin. In ancient Greek, the word for bear was Arctos, and this constellation could be referred to as Arctos. Because this constellation always stays in the very northern part of the sky, the celestial north pole could also be called the Polus Arcticus, the pole of the bear. By around 1400, the adjective Arcticus, or Arctic, could just mean northern, and by 1540, the adjective Arctic could also apply to geographic north, and not just celestial north. In this etymology, the entire region of the Arctic took its name not from a land feature, but from the sky above it. The same applies to the word Antarctic, or Antarctica, which adds the Greek word anti, meaning opposite. The English word Antarctic is especially curious for two reasons. The first citation of the adjective Antarctic actually occurs before the first citation of Arctic, though this is likely just from the evidence that's available. And second, the word Antarctic referred to the southern part of the globe and was attested from 1594, a full two centuries before the discovery of the continent. There's another story about the northern sky involving a word you don't see every day. The word is Sinusure, spelled C-Y-N-O-S-U-R-E. It's defined by Merriam-Webster as, quote, a center of attraction or attention, and as one that serves to direct or guide. It comes from two Greek roots, kunos, meaning dog, and uros, which means tail. So how does a word meaning dog's tail come to mean a guide today? There was a particular northern constellation which the Greeks called Sinusura, the dog's tail, the same constellation which by the 17th century was more commonly called Ursa Minor, the little bear in Latin, and is called the Little Dipper today. This constellation today contains the fixed celestial north pole, explained earlier. A navigator could easily find that star, and then use that star as a reference point. This is a consequence of having a fixed point in the northern sky. The further north you go, the higher that point will appear in the sky, and the further south you go, the lower it will appear. If you're standing at the North Pole, it will be directly above you. So you can navigate using the stars by, in part, keeping that point as a reference. The star, mentioned earlier as Polus Arcticus, became more commonly known as Polaris, from the Latin phrase Stella Polaris, meaning the pole star. It's also known as the North Star. We still use the phrases pole star and north star to figuratively refer to a guiding light or principle, and this is exactly how the word sinusure came into English, 
which just refers to the whole northerly constellation instead of a single star. The first attestation of Sinusur, meaning a guide, is in 1596, and it's first attested as something that attracts attention in 1599. It might have been a different word altogether, if the Greeks had seen some other kind of pattern in that part of the sky, but because they saw a dog's tail, we now have a cool-sounding English word to reflect that. Here's one more closing fact for this section. Polaris hasn't always been the North Star. The stars have gradually moved positions, and Polaris has only aligned with true North since around the Middle Ages. And it won't last forever, either. Due to the Earth's precession, 2,000 years from now, the true North will become more aligned with the star Eri, and Eri will take the title of North Star. Coming up, some more personal constellations. Stay tuned. Part 2. The Zodiac There's something particularly special about constellations that appear close to the celestial equator. These constellations are traversed by the Sun. To viewers on Earth, the Sun appears to be traveling through space, slowly crossing a number of constellations. But this is just a matter of perspective, because the Earth is rotating around the Sun, and the position of the stars changes as the Earth rotates. Also, the sun is too bright to see any other stars in the daytime, but imagine that weren't the case, and that you could see constellations behind the sun. These constellations would change slowly as the year went on, and formed a cycle that lasted one year, and they are part of what's called the ecliptic, the plane containing the sun and earth as the earth rotates around the sun. More familiarly, these ecliptic constellations are part of the zodiac. Zodiac comes directly from a Greek adjective, zodiakos, or rather, zodiakos kuklos, the zodiac cycle. The adjective zodiakos comes from zodion, which means a little figure of an animal, ultimately from the Greek noun zoon, meaning animal, and also the root of the English words zoo and zoology. Zodiac refers to a circle of little animals, the constellations that the sun passes through over the course of the year. Many cultures have zodiacs, with different figures represented. The current zodiac signs today stem from the Greco-Roman tradition, but the Greeks and Romans borrowed and adopted heavily from Egyptian and Babylonian astronomers, who saw many of the same symbols in the heavens. Today, the zodiac signs are all Latin words for the symbol they describe. Aries, the ram, Gemini, the twins, etc., the oddest, perhaps, being Capricorn, meaning horned goat, and taking the form of a half-goat, half-fish being. Twelve zodiac signs were chosen in order to correspond to the twelve months of the year, and the constellations were each assigned one-twelfth of the sky, corresponding pretty well to when the sun was in that area, but not exactly. One sign in the ecliptic, Ophiuchus, the serpent-bearer, got the shaft and wasn't included. Over time, there have been some changes to the Greco-Roman zodiac. In the last 2,000 years, the positions of the stars have shifted, and so it's no longer the case that, for instance, the sun is in front of Pisces during the time that Pisces are born. Also, it's been pointed out that the sign Libra, the scales, isn't a living thing, and so it really doesn't belong in the zodiac, 
etymologically at least. To the Greeks, that star combination wasn't scales, but rather the claws of the scorpion, the sign Scorpio. But over time, the claws were seen as scales instead, as indeed the Babylonians before had also seen them. Two of the modern astrological constellations, Cancer and Capricorn, have contributed to English in another way. When the sun is as northerly as it can get in relation to the Earth, at the June solstice, it is during the period of Cancer, the astrological crab. When it reaches its maximum, it then begins to appear more and more southerly in the sky. The latitude of Earth that corresponds to this point was called the North Tropic, or Tropic of Cancer. Tropic coming from the Greek word trope, meaning a turn, or rather a change in direction. Similarly, when the sun is furthest south during the December solstice, it is the sign of Capricorn, and the southern limit is the Tropic of Capricorn. All the modern zodiac constellations are in between those two celestial latitudes. The word tropic, by 1600, began to be able to refer to the hot and luscious environment of the area between the two astrological tropics. Just as with Arctic, tropical is a current geographical term with a weather-related meaning that originated with the position of the sun and stars. Coming up, some wacky constellations. Stay with us. Part 3. The Southern Constellations In 1922, the International Astronomical Union designated an official set of 88 constellations covering the entire sky, such that every point in the sky, anywhere on Earth, was assigned to a constellation. In choosing the 88, the Union relied heavily on the Ptolemaic and then European astronomical tradition. 48 of the 88 are the Greek constellations laid out in Ptolemy's Almagest, compiled in the 2nd century CE, which largely had names associated with Greek myths. But these 48 only covered brighter stars, and only parts of the globe visible to the Greeks, not the far south. There was an entire hemisphere's worth of stars that European astronomers didn't know about. These southern constellations were identified later, and many have interesting names. After the first 48, the next set of constellations were contributed by astronomer and cartographer Petrus Plancius. Plancius was interested in exploration, and helped sponsor Dutch exploratory missions to Southeast Asia and Indonesia. Specifically, he tasked two Dutch explorers, Petrus Theodorus and Frederick de Hoopman, to keep astronomical observations, and together they all created twelve new constellations of the southern sky. Following the model of many cultures, many of the constellations were animals, but with a decidedly European hand. The explorers chose animals that were strange and unfamiliar to them, new highlights from unexplored areas. So that's where we get modern constellations such as Chameleon, Phoenix, Apus, the bird of paradise, Pavo, the peacock, Tucana, the toucan, Dorado, the dolphinfish, Hydrus, the water snake, and Volans, the flying fish. These expeditions took place in the 1590s, 
and in 1603, the new constellations were immortalized in Johann Bayer's star atlas called Uranometria, which meant measuring the heavens. In this way, Uranometry is the celestial counterpart of geometry, measuring the Earth. Another major contribution came over a century later from French astronomer Nicolas Louis de Lacaille. Lacaille set up an observatory near Cape Town, South Africa, and cataloged over 10,000 stars of the southern sky. His work yielded 14 new constellations. But Lacaille eschewed the animal name precedent that had become typical. Instead, this man of science named constellations after scientific equipment. Some of Lacaille's constellations are the Latin names for the following objects. The air pump, the chisel, the pendulum clock, the chemical furnace, the microscope, the easel, the octant, the eyepiece graticule, and, naturally, the telescope. These relative newcomers to the history of stargazing now share the heavens with the mythological beasts of old. Apart from the additions of the southern constellations, the only final additions to the canon of constellations were to fill in the darker spots unassigned by the ancient Greeks, so that the sky could have full coverage. Many astronomers proposed solutions for these spaces, but eventually, the contributions of Polish astronomer Ioannis Hevelius were the ones that were eventually accepted. Hevelius is more famous today for his contributions to selenography, the study of the features of the moon. But in astronomy, he added seven constellations of various types, including animals, a lion, a lizard, and a lynx, scientific equipment, his trusty sextant, a mythological scene, a fox carrying a goose to Cerberus, and a historical figure. He named one constellation Scutum Sobieskanum, the Shield of Sobieski, to commemorate the victory of Polish King Jan III Sobieski at the Battle of Vienna in 1683. Jan Sobieski has an interesting distinction. It was a common literary trope, especially among ancient authors, that famous individuals be immortalized in the heavens. But, at least in the modern 88, this is only true for two historical figures. Jan Sobieski, mentioned above, and Berenike II, a queen of Egypt in the 3rd century BCE, whose hair, the Coma Berenikes, is immortalized in the stars. But I want to go into detail about one Hevelius constellation in particular, the Canes Venatici, Latin for the hunting dogs, whose name has an interesting etymological backstory. There was an ancient Greek constellation in the northern sky called Bootes, meaning the herdsman, from the Greek bous, meaning cow. Next to Bootes, there were some unassigned stars, which over time came to be identified as the staff of Bootes. When Ptolemy's Almagest was translated into Arabic in the 9th century, the Greek word for a shepherd's staff, kolorobos, was unfamiliar, and the translator decided to render it as a word in Arabic that sounded similar, but had a slightly different meaning. In Arabic, this constellation was then known as Dat al-Kulab, a spear shaft having a hook. Then, later on when the Arabic astronomical texts were translated into Latin, the word Kulab, 
hook, was incorrectly read as kilab, meaning dog, and the Latin constellation then became spear shaft with dogs. It was then thought that Boötes must be depicted with dogs, and so the faint hunting dogs constellation is what astronomers labeled the area next to Boötes, and the hunting dogs remain a constellation to this day. This last example hits on an interesting trend in celestial naming. The modern 88 constellations all have Latin names, reflecting the European astronomical tradition. But after classical antiquity, the Islamic worlds became the hotspot for astronomical observation and learning. As a reflection of this tradition, many individual star names of various constellations are derived from Arabic. Perhaps the most famous example is a star of the constellation Orion. At one point in Islamic astronomy, Orion was called Al-Jawza, meaning the central one, and the large star at Orion's top left was called Ibt Al-Jawza, meaning the armpit of the central one. This etymology is contested, but it's one possibility. Ibt Al-Jawza would then become Bed Al-Jaws, and finally Betelgeuse which lent its name to a popular character and is a staple of science fiction. Islamic astronomy, in addition to contributing some interesting star names, has also left English with some more common terms. There was a lot of discussion in the first part of the episode about celestial navigation, finding poles, tropic lines, etc. And our final pair of words fits into this endeavor. The Arabic word for path was samt. S-A-M-T, and it was part of the phrase Samt ar-Ras, meaning path over the head. Samt ar-Ras referred to the point in the sky directly overhead. But when this phrase passed into Latin, at some point in the process there was a small but important scribal error. The pesky M in Samt was confused for an N-I, so Samt became Sonnet and sonnet in Latin eventually became the word zenith, originally referring to the point in the sky directly overhead, but now referring to any figurative peak. And similarly, the point in the celestial sphere directly opposite the point directly above was known as nather asamt, that is, the opposite point from the samt. The word nadir, opposite, eventually became the English word nadir, originally meaning the opposite point on the celestial sphere, but today figuratively referring to the lowest point of anything. So we have Islamic astronomy to thank for the word pair of zenith and nadir. We've covered a lot of different subjects, so I very quickly wanted to recap the actual words discussed. First, the positions of the stars in the heavens, in some cases, led to terms involving Earth's geography, examples of which are the words Arctic, Antarctic, and Tropical. Second, the study of celestial astronomy and mathematics led to other words, some more common than others, zenith, nadir, and sinusure. Third, we get some words that have to do with the content of the constellations themselves, that's where we get Zodiac and Betelgeuse. And fourth, 
There are common words which take their meanings from the idea that fate is written in the stars. Words such as consider, desire, and mazel. There are so many interesting stories about the constellations and their origins, about the history of celestial cartography, and about obsolete or former constellations. This podcast had a heavily European perspective, and focused on the legacy of the Greco-Roman astronomical tradition and its contribution to English. But cultures all over the world had advanced astronomical techniques, long traditions, saw different patterns in the stars and zodiac, and have different myths for what they saw in the stars. If you have a favorite constellation, story, star myth, or know of astronomically derived words in other languages, please write in. It would be nice to feature some of these in the next episode. That's it for this episode. It was a long one. If you'd like more information or you want a list of sources on the topic, just visit our website at www.wordjourneyspodcast.com. I consulted some really interesting books for this one. As always, please write in with questions, comments, or suggestions for future topics. We're also on Twitter, at WordJourneysPod, if you want to receive the latest updates. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please tell your friends about it. Musical selections in this episode come from Kai Engel, the Advent Chamber Orchestra, and Turku Nomads of the Silk Road. This is Dallas Simons. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.